If you would, take out your Bibles and turn with me to uh, Luke, the 24th chapter. I know we've been in the Gospel of John, but we take a break today and we'll turn um, into Luke, the 24th chapter. If you don't have a Bible, um, you can use one of the pewback Bibles in front of us. Now, I know some of you like to use your Bible on your phone and, hey, that's fine. You know, we're not going to make that a theological argument. I just know from practicality that if I had my phone in my hand, that I would be tempted to look at Twitter and Facebook and all that. But I'm sure that a lot of you are far more into church than I am and a lot more disciplined than I am. So I'll trust you if I look and you got your phone out. Okay, you're just probably taking notes, right? I, I, I believe that. Luke chapter 24, uh, it's on page 885. We're going to jump down and read a little bit of the latter part. So let me give you just a context. I think the context was probably a little bit obvious, but the context is this, that it's the first resurrection day. It's the first resurrection Sunday. The women have already gone to the garden early in the morning and found that the tomb was empty. The stone has been rolled back. Mary herself has already seen Jesus. Jesus has probably already appeared to Simon Peter. Jesus has also appeared to two disciples on the, on the road to Emmaus. We'll talk about that in the text. And now it's now Sunday evening and Jesus' disciples have met together. Well, a lot of, many of his disciples and now the 10 of the 11 apostles that have, that have uh, made it. So the, the original disciples, Jesus' original um, 12 are now called apostles. And so there's 10 of them meeting. Judas has already sadly committed suicide. Thomas is not in the room, but there's 10 of them. They're all meeting up in the room. The women um, come bursting in. They're chattering about Jesus being resurrected from the dead. And we saw Jesus and Simon Peter's there and he's telling his story. And Cleopas and the other disciple that met Jesus on the road to Emmaus, they burst into the scene and we're gonna pick it up there in the text, okay? So we're gonna start in verse number 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, his first words to his disciples, peace to you. And they were startled and frightened and they thought they had saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Hallelujah beginning with Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth. Thank you that we get 
to proclaim you risen. And Lord, we're fulfilling what you promised and what you told the disciples to do. We are going to proclaim today that you have been risen from the day on the third day and that repentance and forgiveness of sins come through you. Do what only you can do. Resurrect our dead, cold hearts even this morning. For your great glory, we ask this in your name. Amen. Thank you. You could be seated. Let me give for you um, kind of the, the main idea. It's the main idea of the text. It's the main idea of Easter. It's the main idea. If you want to take some notes, I know on the back of the bulletin that you were handed when you came in, there's a great place for you to do that. And here's the main idea of the sermon. It is this, that Jesus's resurrection is not only the foundation of our faith. And when I say our faith, I'm talking about the Christian faith. It's the foundation of our, those of us in the room who are Christians, it's the foundation of our faith. What is the foundation of our faith? The resurrection of Christ. But it is also a verifiable historical fact that changes everything. And we're going to look at this. We're going to break the text down. We're going to walk through the text. We're going to look at it in three different chunks. The first chunk, I'm going to, and I'll just be honest with you. Like I, I went to, I went to, uh, I went to Bible college and in Bible college, I had, uh, I had a, some classes on preaching and, and I, I did fairly well in those. And one of the things they, t- they talk about is like to try to get your points to alliterate, but I'm never that clever. And so sometimes I try, but it just feels forced and feels silly. And so I just leave it, but somehow, some way my points alliterate. So I feel like I got a jacket on this morning, right? Shirts tucked in, teeth brushed. I just feel like more pastoral for some reason. Second anniversary in this big, beautiful sanctuary. We're here. We got brass chandelier. Like, how did we get here? And you got a pastor who can alliterate. So here we go. The first one is this, that it is facts that feed our faith. Fact that feeds our faith. Let's be honest for a second that we are a culture who is, by and large, we're somewhat amused or entertained or we're intrigued by life after death, especially whenever life that was with us is dead and then comes back. How many of you, maybe from my generation, how many of you all remember Miss Cleo, right? The, the Creole, Cleo, the Creole Cla- uh, Clairvant that was on TV late at night, you know, with her infomercial, like anybody remember that? Yeah. So you remember that. And if we move fast forward a little bit, like how many of you watch uh, Ghost Hunter on, on TV? I think it's on Sci-Fi. Maybe it's on one of those networks. It's not ESPN for the men in the room. There's other channels other than ESPN. It's about a, so you know, these guys that go to these places that are supposedly haunted and it's always shot with night vision. And they're like, oh, you know, I felt this spirit or whatever. I'm not saying, I'm just saying like people watch that. Or there are those of you in the rooms that need Jesus that are, that are fascinated by zombies on The Walking Dead. Like some of you here, you got parties that you have and you get all into the walking dead and we're not gonna show, have a show of hands. We'll do that in a few minutes. Um, when we do an altar call, you can show your hands then that watch it. I mean, I'll be honest, like I, no judgment. I'm, I'm just joking. Like I've watched the whole of 30 seconds of, uh, of the walking dead. I got two teenagers. I got enough to keep me up at night uh, with fear right there, right? I don't need images of zombies being shot with shotguns. Right? I don't need that in my, entering into my mind between my, two teenagers in my own self-doubt and self-condemnation. I got enough to keep me up at night. We are a culture that is somewhat, we're somewhat uh, smitten by, if you would, life after death. And when Jesus, a once dead, now resurrected Jesus, when Jesus shows up into the room, he was in a village 
of Emmaus. And then Jesus disappears. He vanishes and then he reappears. This is his glorified body he's, he has now. He reappears in a room where it seems as if the, the doors are shut, the windows are shut, and then all of a sudden Jesus shows up. Jesus is right in the middle of the room. And it says that the disciples, they are, they're startled and they're frightened. They think, they, see a, they think they're looking at a ghost, thinking maybe they're looking at just Jesus' spirit. They knew that Jesus had been crucified. They knew that Jesus had died on the cross. They knew that he'd been taken down. They knew that he'd been placed in a tomb. They knew that the tomb had been sealed shut. And now all of a the sudden, they're hearing these rumors. People are talking, buzzing, all of that about Jesus now being alive. And then all of a sudden, in their midst, Jesus shows up. And Jesus' words to them, such beautiful words. It's words that we need to hear, even from Jesus and his word, even today, is this simply, peace, peace to you. And then Jesus asked them maybe a, a rhetorical question. Jesus asked them what seems to be obvious, but Jesus asked them this question. It says, why are you troubled and why do, you, do doubts arise in your hearts? That phrase um, that's used there, that Luke uses, why do doubts arise in your, in your hearts? The word doubt if you look at that in the, in, the, in the Greek, it's the same word that we get the word dialogue from. What Jesus is saying is, why is this inner dialogue happening inside of your heart? And certainly there's probably a dialogue happening in their hearts. They're probably saying inside of themselves, they're saying, we thought he was dead and now here he is. What does this mean? What does his resurrection mean? How can this happen? Is this a ghost? Is this really him? Is it his spirit? They're asking all of those questions. And then Jesus tells them, I'm not a ghost. This isn't an aberration. This isn't my spirit. This is my physical, now glorified body that you are looking at. And then Jesus invites them. Look, he says. Then he says, touch, feel me. Look at my hands, look at my feet, touch me, feel me. Here I am. A ghost does not have flesh. A ghost does not have bones. You cannot touch a ghost. This isn't a ghost. And then what follows is a phrase that I absolutely love. It, Luke writes it like this, and he says, and while they still disbelieved for joy, and they were marveling at him. What a line. They disbelieve, disbelieved for joy. That means there was this mixture of emotions that he felt. Smiles came across their face, the joy part, but then there is still this confusion in their hearts. They're still asking the question. They're still thinking, this is way too good to be true. And then Jesus asked for something to eat. Does it seem odd that Jesus would say, hey, you got anything to eat around here? I mean, what's Jesus doing in that? They go, hey, we got some fish over here we've been... I like to picture it frying. Maybe it's, maybe it's broiling. Those of you that broil your fish, have a way, but you know, we get, maybe it's fried, right? But he says, you know, do you got any fish? And what they mean by broiled is just simply grilled. We'll see Jesus will be broiling fish and it, later on um, in the gospel accounts whenever, and it means over an open fire. He's just cooking some fish. And so they say, hey, we got some broiled fish over here. And they hand Jesus a piece of fish and then they watch a once dead, now resurrected Jesus chew up food and swallow it and eat it. And I want us to spend the next few minutes thinking about that act right there. Jesus, once dead, now alive, now in their midst, taking a piece of fish, 
chewing it up and swallowing it. Like, why do you think Jesus did that? Why do you think Jesus asked for something to eat? You think it was because it had been a couple of days since he ate? I mean, crucified on Friday, probably didn't eat much then. Probably maybe the last thing he ate was the Passover meal with his disciples and all day Saturday spent in, in the tomb and now it's resurrected and he's thinking, man, nothing works up an appetite like being dead, right? <laughs> you think that's why Jesus asked? I don't think it was. I don't think it was just, just that, but Jesus asked for something to eat because he wanted to prove something. That Jesus is proving to his disciples that he is, in fact, alive. Then, in fact, Jesus did this himself whenever he resurrected Jairus' daughter. I think it's in Luke chapter 8. He resurrects her from the dead and he says to the family, now go give her something to eat. Jesus isn't saying, hey, being dead and coming back from alive works up an appetite. That's not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying to that family is, hey, she's alive now. She's back to normal. Give her some food. It's okay. Her digestive tract is now intact. Give her some food. And Jesus now is proving that with his own body. He's proving it to the disciples. Jesus doesn't eat fish for his benefit, but Jesus eats fish for their benefit and for our benefit. The John Calvin said, as Jesus fed on the fish, he feeds the disciples' faith. That Luke will write in Acts, the first chapter, that, that the Jesus presented himself alive with this is the part, with many convincing proofs. Jesus will present himself. He will appear and show himself to be alive, but then he will use many convincing proofs to show his disciples and those that he appears to that I am really alive. It is me. They see a Jesus who once was dead and now is alive. Now, this isn't the only post-resurrection account in the scriptures. This isn't the only time Jesus has appeared alive. I've already told you that he appeared alive in the garden on Sunday morning to Mary and to the other women. We know he, Mary saw him. He's already appeared alive, I believe, to Simon Peter alone. And there's not much talked about um, in that text of scripture. Paul picks it up in 1 Corinthians, I believe in the 15th chapter. He's already appeared on the road to Emmaus. There's two disciples, Cleopas and another one that are leaving out of Jerusalem. This is probably Sunday afternoon and they're on their way to a small village, the village of Emmaus. And Jesus shows up and they don't even recognize Jesus. They, it's like his, his, who he is has been, his identity is being hid from them. And so they're talking and Jesus listens in, eavesdrops, right? He eavesdrops in on their conversation. He's like, hey, what are you guys talking about? They're like, where have you been? Have you been under a rock or something? Are you a visitor of Jerusalem? Haven't you heard about Jesus and what's occurred to Jesus? And which is irony, right? If anybody had a front row as to what happened to Jesus, it was Jesus. But nevertheless, Jesus is, and then they go into the city of, or they go into the village of Emmaus and Jesus joins them there. On the way, he begins to open up the scriptures to him. Then he sits down and Jesus eats a meal with those men as well. And then Jesus, he opens up their eyes to see that it's really him. And then he disappears. And one of my favorite lines in all of the Bible, they said, did not our hearts burn within us as he opened up the scriptures to us? And then they get excited and they run back and they've come back to Jerusalem. And now we have this account. 10 of the disciples are together in the room and Jesus appears. And that's just Sunday. Right, that's day one of 40 days. Scripture tells us Jesus was with the disciples for 40 days. That's one day. 
Eight days later, Jesus will show up to all 11 disciples that are gathered together in a room. It's there that doubting Thomas will be in the room and Jesus will tell Thomas as well, hey, Thomas, they're not lying, buddy. Come touch, it's me, I'm alive. It's, it's really me. And so Thomas will touch his, his, his side. Jesus will tell his disciples again, hey, meet me on top of a mountain in Galilee. Meet me in, meet, meet me in Jerusalem. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that Jesus will, will appear to 500 disciples together in one room. It's a big crowd and they all see Jesus. When Paul writes that, what he's doing, when he writes that, he's inviting people to come and disprove that. He's saying like, hey, if you can disprove that, disprove that. But I know it to be certain that a post-resurrected Jesus appeared to 500 people. Jesus will appear to his own brother, James. Like you get the picture? Like this isn't a one-time event. 11 men or so huddled up in a room. This is Jesus over 40 days. Jesus showing up. Jesus proving that he is alive. And why does Jesus do all of that? He does that to feed their faith. These disciples, they saw Jesus. They touched Jesus. They spoke with Jesus. They ate and they drank and they were fed by Jesus. A once dead, now bodily raised Jesus. And after Jesus' resurrection, these same men, they will begin to preach in Jerusalem, the very city where Jesus was crucified. They'll begin to preach that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. They will preach that in Jerusalem and then they will go on to preach that elsewhere. They will preach his resurrection and what it means for all of humanity. They will proclaim it, be arrested for it, threatened and beaten and ultimately die for their claim that they had indeed saw a resurrected Jesus. Now listen, here's where it meets us. It meets us here. Here's where it applies to us as we can all have that inner dialogue we can all have that inner dialogue in our own hearts like the disciples. We can ask ourselves, can this really be true? A man who was dead is now alive. Can we really believe it? Is it too good to be, uh, is it too good to be true? And what does it mean if it is true? And much like these disciples, Jesus knows that our faith is fickle. And Jesus, out of great grace, as part of God's plan, God has Jesus step back into time, back into human history. Jesus does normal human activities in order to feed their faith and in order to feed our faith. And what this means for us is that the foundation of Christianity, the foundation of our faith for those of us who believe in Jesus. The foundation is not subjective feelings or subjective ethics or subjective experience, but it's objective fact, namely the death and the resurrection of Jesus. What this means is that Jesus's resurrection is a verifiable historical fact as much as any event in history that you and I can believe in the resurrection of Jesus, just like you and I can believe in any other verifiable historical event. This week, I tried to think about some verifiable historical events that have taken place throughout history, things that have occurred in history, monumental things that have occurred in history that have altered the course of history. For example, in, on August 24th, 410 AD, a group of barbarians called the Viscos, 
They sacked the city of Rome, which led to the fall of the Roman Empire. The greatest empire known at that time was taken over and it occurred, it began on August 24th, 410 AD. Or maybe something a little more contemporary. July 4th, 1776, the writing of the Declaration of of Independence. A group of men got together and framed out a document to which in that document, they declared their independence from the British rule, from the British empire. Hey, this is us and this is what we're gonna do. We the people, all of that was written. When was it written? On July 4th, 1776, or maybe something even a little more recent, D-Day. June 6, 1944, the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy, France, a day that will forever change human history. Or maybe here's another day, November 28, 1974. It was a beautiful day. It was a, it was a crisp day. It was Thanksgiving day. It was a day that I was born. That's what we're talking about here. Monumental days that have forever changed human history. Well, at least they forever changed my history. Right? They forever changed my life and my parents' life. But let me give for you another one, a monumental historical day. It's the day that the physical resurrection of the purpose of the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And it happened. It really, really happened. And you can believe in it as much as you believe in any other date and in any other event. And this is what it means that if Jesus really rose from the dead, then there is not a single person or a single thing in this whole universe that is more important than him. If Jesus came out of the grave, resurrected, glorified body, was seen, touched, ate, drank among the disciples, then we can say this, that he is the most important person. Not a single person, not a single thing is more important than Jesus. That Jesus' bodily resurrection, it forever changed history. And it has the power to change you today. It's not just something that's grounded in history, but he by his power, by the nature of who he is, by the nature of the declaration of that event, he has real power to change you today. Let me ask you a question. Are you living your life today any different because Jesus walked out of that grave? I said it changes human history and it has. Look at the mark Christianity has made on human history. Good or bad, look at the mark it has made. 2,000 years later, here we are inside of a church, inside of a building, gathering together, preaching and proclaiming. People are doing it all over the globe. Some have gone before us, some will come later, all proclaiming the same truth. Jesus him walking out of the grave. It has changed human history, but let me ask you, has it changed you personally? Has Jesus's resurrection left an indelible mark on your life? Does the historical event of Jesus's resurrection, does it give shape? Does it give substance? Does it give meaning? Does it give direction to your life? Or would your life look the same if Jesus would have stayed in the grave? Are you living a life congruent with that truth? That Jesus has been risen. 
Jesus has risen and there's healing and there's power and there's forgiveness and there's salvation in his wings. And does that affect your life? It is a fact that feeds our faith, but it's also a fellowship that quells our fears. Jesus asking for a very simple piece of fish. It wasn't just to prove that he was bodily resurrected. But what Jesus is doing here as well is Jesus is initiating fellowship with his disciples. See, in that time, it was a special thing to be invited into someone's home and to share a meal with them. I mean, we're moving back into that now. It's a special thing to be invited into someone's home and for that person to cook a meal for you and you to sit down around their table and to share a meal. It's called table fellowship. And what it means is, is hey, I wanna be your friend. When you get invited over into someone's home, what they're saying is, hey, I wanna be your friend. I wanna get to know you. I'm initiating fellowship and friendship with you. And it meant the same thing then, even more. What Jesus is saying when he says, hey, do you have any fish to eat? Is Jesus is initiating fellowship with his disciples again. Remember, that was one of the religious people. That was their problem with Jesus, is that Jesus was eating. That's a, he's eating and drinking. He's going into the homes of prostitutes and tax collectors and lawyers, right? And that goes and other folks like that. That's what Jesus is. I'm just joking. That's what Jesus is doing. He's, and they got all up in arms. And what Jesus was saying by that is he was saying, I want fellowship with these people. These are the people that I'm extending my kingdom to. And now what Jesus is saying is to the disciples is I want to, I want to extend fellowship to you. Now that may not seem odd to you, but think about what had just occurred over the last few hours. Every one of his disciples had abandoned him. He'd been betrayed by one Peter, had, the leader of the group, had failed to confess him time and time again. He had denied Jesus three times and all of the disciples had left. Think about this for just a moment. They left Jesus's body on the cross. You didn't do that. Like it was already, scripture gives us this, cursed is any man who hangs upon a tree. In Jesus' culture, it was a cursed thing for you to be crucified and then what added to the cursedness was if your body was just left there. That by that action, what his disciples were saying to him is you're not worthy to be taken off. Your body isn't even be worthy to be taken off the cross and to be properly buried. It's two hidden disciples, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Remember him back in, I think, John 3? It's J Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus that go to the officials and say, hey, can we have Jesus's body? And they lay it in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. I'm sure some of the doubts that were rising up, some of the dialogue was in their own heart. It wasn't just about Jesus's spirit, but what's Jesus's attitude toward us? What is Jesus, what, 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 how does he feel toward us? Is Jesus angry with us? We've, we've, we've betrayed him. We've walked away from him. And now we failed him so miserable. And what Jesus does by asking for this fish is Jesus is inviting himself back into fellowship with them. Jesus is here with forgiving love. And that is important for us even today. Because maybe you're here this morning and maybe you think God's love is for everyone but you. Maybe you think that you've sinned too greatly. You've failed too miserably. You've ignored him for too long. You've taken advantage of his goodness and his grace. And the good news of the gospel is that this, 
that Jesus comes and Jesus initiates and Jesus invites sinners like these men, sinners like me, sinners like you to come in fellowship with him. Listen, church. Listen, sinner in the room. Don't flatter yourself by thinking your sin is too great for the cross of Christ. Do not lessen the grace of God to think that somehow God's love, God's power, God's power is not strong enough to save you. He can, he will. His forgiveness, his love for you is a ferocious love. His forgiveness is a real power and your, your sin is not too great for the cross. It's not too great for Jesus, that our salvation, it does not come through human effort, not through us being good enough, but salvation comes by Jesus showing up just as Jesus has done here. Jesus initiates the fellowship with them. But also in this text, we see the last little chunk I want us to look at is what we see here is we see a fulfillment that secures our forgiveness. Let me read for you the last part. We're going to skip, skip past the part about the fish. So how many of you are now going to go to Cracker Barrel and get some of their fish? You ever had their grilled trout with the lemon? Oh my God. That'd be where we go today, mama. All right. Verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of, the, of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witness of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Listen, because identity theft is a real thing, isn't it? Not, not a show of hands, but how many of you have had your, your debit card stolen, your numbers stolen? And, I mean, that's a real thing, right? And because identity theft is a real thing, you and I, we've become very accustomed to having to live with verification of identity. Like we're accustomed to layers of verification of identity, PIN numbers and passwords and photo IDs. That's just part of life for us, is it not? Think about our cell phones. We've gone from passcodes, which were numbers. At one time, it was four-digit number. And I'm just speaking of the iPhone here, right? It was four-digit. That Now it's six-digit. Then thumbprint. Now it's like facial recognition. Like, I don't even want to think about what that thing's doing to my face. I don't know. That's up to you. You know, it's going to be retina display, shine that in your eye so that your phone, this is your phone, right? This isn't your money with your, your vault with all your money in it. This is just to get into your phone. You've got this. I mean, it sounds like something from James Bond, right? Remember James Bond looking the thing. Now you've got that kind of technology in your, in your pocket, in your purse, right? And each time you try to get into your phone, what is your phone asking you? Is it really you? verify your identity if it's really you. You're the only one that knows the key. You're the only one that looks like this. All of those types of things, it's asking you. And here's the deal. The Bible in the Old Testament says there were gonna be many who may come, who may claim to be the Messiah, 
There may be many who come who would say that they're a conquering savior. So the Bible has built into it layers. In the Old Testament, there are layers of verification. They come throughout the Old Testament prophecy spoken about the Messiah. What it's saying is when the Messiah comes, he is going to fulfill these prophecies. Some of them spoken hundreds of years before the Messiah comes on the scene. In fact, in the Old Testament where Jesus is referring to, there's some 322 Old Testament prophecies spoken about Jesus that Jesus fulfills. 322. In fact, let me read them for you. Prophecy number one. Okay, let me just read a few of them to you. Not 322, but listen. Things are outside of Jesus's control. They would say, is Jesus just reading this, knowing this and reverse engineering his life? How can Jesus affect where he's born? And yet scripture would say that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. That's in the book of Micah, prophecy of Micah, chapter five, verse two. The Messiah would be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, 14. The Messiah would come from the line of Abraham. Probably didn't have a lot of control over that. Genesis 12, three. From the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49, 10. That he would spend a season in Egypt, Hosea 11, 1. That a messenger would prepare the way for him, Isaiah 40, three, uh, verses three through five. That he would be rejected by his own people, Psalm 69, eight, and Isaiah 53, three. That he would be betrayed, Psalm 41, nine, and Zechariah 11, 12 through 13. He would be falsely accused, Psalm 35. His price money will be paid to, be, to buy a potter's field, Zechariah 11, 12 through 13. That he would be spat upon and mocked, Isaiah 56. That he would be crucified between two criminals, Isaiah 53, 12. That he would be given vinegar to drink, Psalm 69, 21. That his hands and his feet would be pierced, Psalm 22, 16, and Zechariah 12, 10. That soldiers would gamble for his garments, Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. I think there's any need for us to go on. The only question that meets for us is, what does this mean? What does this mean for us that Jesus would fulfill three hundred and twenty, three hundred and twenty-two layers of verification? that Jesus will pass in order for him to declare himself to be the Messiah. What does this mean? What means this? That Jesus of Nazareth was no ordinary man, but Jesus was who he said he was. He was the very son of God who come and put on flesh and lived among us and lived a perfect life and died a substitutionary death and was bodily raised victorious from the grave and ascended on high. And what that means for you is you can put faith and trust in him. What it means for you is that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Jesus is, as John, as we looked at just a few weeks ago, Jesus said of his very words in John 14, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. What this means is the only way that you will see heaven, the only way that you will taste eternal life, the only way that you will feel fulfillment even in this life, it's through Jesus. It's through faith. It's through receiving him and receiving his work with the open hands of faith. It's believing him, not just believing in his existence, not just believing that he is the son of God, not just believing that, okay, I believe Jesus, you fulfilled those 322. It's, but when, it's when you believe and you put all of your faith, you bank everything on him, 
that you understand that Jesus has come because you were a sinner and you have sinned against a holy God. You've sinned in thought and you've sinned in deed. You've sinned in your heart. You've sinned with your pride. You've sinned with your mouth. You've sinned with your hands. You've sinned with your feet. You have offended him. He is your creator. He made you. You are made to know him and to be loved by him and to be in fellowship with him. And you've sinned before him. You've broken his covenant. You've broken his laws. You've broken all of those things. And he sent his son to pay the price for your sin to die the death that you deserve, to live the life that you could not live. Jesus lived for you. He lived it for you. He died for you. It's on the cross that he is saying to you, I love you. I want to be in fellowship with you. Come, kneel at my cross. Believe in me. Trust in me. Don't run from me. See my love for you. That is what the cross means. That is what those 322 Layers of verification mean, that means that Jesus is who he said he was and all of his promises are true, including his promises for you. Including his promises for you. That means that forgiveness is real, that you can feel it, you can know it. It means that Jesus is worthy of your faith and he's worthy of your trust. Let me just ask you, have you ever said to Jesus, see what the implications Jesus gives to us in the text? What's the implications? Here's the implications of it, that we should preach and proclaim two things, repentance and forgiveness of our sins. And let me ask you this morning, have you ever said to Jesus, Jesus, I'm sorry for the sins that I've committed? Jesus, I'm sorry for the pride that has been in my heart. I'm sorry for the lies that I've told. I'm sorry for the lustful thoughts that I've thought. I'm sorry for not glorifying you in the way that you deserve to be glorified. I'm sorry for turning to worthless and vain things to fill the void in my heart. I'm sorry for the things that I've drank, smoked, snorted, the images that I've consumed on the internet, the money that I've wasted, the strife that I've caused. I'm sorry for doing all those things to try to fill the void in my soul. Jesus, today I turn away from those things and I turn toward you. I see them for what they are. They're worthless idols. They're a rebellion from you and I turn towards you. Have you prayed like that? And the life that you live today, is it congruent with that prayer? Some of you would say, yeah, I pray that. But let me ask you the follow-up question. Is the life that you now currently living today, is it congruent with that prayer? Do you still hate your sin? Are you still running to Jesus? Are you still trying to live a life that glorifies him and makes him known? The first thing that we see here is that you're worthy, that Jesus is worthy of your faith and your trust. The second thing we see in this text is that you and I have good news to tell. It's not just for you, but it's for the whole world. It isn't just for the disciples. It wasn't just for the Jews. It wasn't just for the religious. It wasn't just for the irreligious. It was for everyone that you and I have great news to tell. There's a church in, uh, in Nashville. And I, always, I, t- I tell my wife that if anything was to happen to us here, if we were to ever leave or wherever, I think we would move to Nashville and I would join this church. It's Emmanuel. Uh, the name of it's Emmanuel Church. The pastor is a man by the name of Ray Ortland, although he's retiring next year. So I guess you guys are stuck with me. I'm not going anywhere. 
Um, and at Emmanuel Church, they have something that they call the Emmanuel Mantra. This is what their church puts up. This is what they believe. This is on the back of their business cards. And here is the Emmanuel Mantra. It's simply this. Number one, I am a complete idiot. Now, my four-year-old would say, Daddy, we don't say that word. But there's something powerful when we admit that we're idiots. Number two is my future is incredibly bright. And number three, anybody can get in on this. Number one, that I'm a complete idiot. What this means is there has never been not one nanosecond of time where God has looked at you and been impressed by you. Not one. He never looked at you and go, ooh, what have we got here? Not one. And you know this to be true. Because when you look at you, you don't go, ooh. Like some of you do and you understand it as pride. But most of us, we live lives where nobody frustrates me like me, right? Nobody is as frustrated by me as much as I frustrate me. We live that. We know that. We, that's not a big surprise to us. What the surprising part is what follows, that my future is incredibly bright. Why is my future incredibly bright? Because Jesus lived a perfect life and he did that for me. And he died the guilty death under the wrath of God that I don't want to die, that I could not die. And he did all of that for me. And now what he does is he asks of me, what can we do? What can I do right now, Lord? I'm an idiot. I'm an idiot. What he says to you right now is all you have to do is receive me. Salvation comes. My new life comes in through my mercy, not through your works. It's through the open hands of faith. Do you know enough to receive me? Are you smart enough to receive me? If you do, your future is incredibly bright, but I'm a complete idiot. That's right. I love idiots like you. And lastly, because it's all based upon God's mercy, it's for anybody. Anybody can get in on this. No matter how idiotic you have been, you can get in on this. Unless, unless it's too far beneath you. If this, if the gospel of Christ if his forgiveness and his new life, if it's too far beneath you and your, your future is not incredibly bright. Your future is not incredibly bright. But for those of us who trust in Christ, for those of us who believe in him, my, my, my. Eyes have not seen. And your mind's conjured up what it is that God has for us, for his saints as he awaits. Peter himself, the one who denied Jesus three times, Peter writes about this in his little book of the Bible. Um, actually, he has two letters that he wrote, but in First Peter, he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you're looking for a perfect church or a perfect pastor, but if you're looking for a perfect savior and a perfect salvation and a perfect hope, this is for you. This is for you. 
He's holding this, the resurrection. It's to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. And it's being kept in heaven for you. And you, you right now, by God's power, you are being guarded through your faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray. Guard us for that salvation. Father, I pray for us just that in this time and in this moment that we would do business with you, that as we sing this, we sing this final song, Lord, that, Lord, you would be glorified as we spend a few moments just thinking about our own lives, Jesus. I pray that you would be glorified in that, Lord. Spirit, do your bidding and do your work among us in this moment and in this time. Lord, there are some in the room who have yet to repent of sin, who have yet to turn, who have yet to believe and place real genuine faith, who have yet to receive this precious gift from you, Lord. And I pray for those folks in the room that today would be the day of salvation for them, that you would do what only you could do. You would resurrect the dead by your power, your might that you flexed on that first resurrection day, that you would flex it again in our lives. For your great fame, we pray this, Lord, in your name. Amen.